Can we give me a little credit for not saying anything about his voice on this episode? I really think I took a lot of restraint, and I think I need some props for that. Did you like? Did you put like a post-it like right on? The I screen? did. It's right on the screen, right here. It says, "Don't be a dick about his voice." Welcome to another week of 1001 Album Complaints, the podcast where lifelong musicians and old friends pick an album from Robert Dimery's list of 1001 albums you must hear before you die to listen to all week, analyze, talk a little crap on, and ultimately vote whether or not you needed to hear this album before you perished. This week, we've been listening to Bob Dylan's Bringing It All Back Home. Very, very excited to get into this one. I have a feeling it's going to be a contentious episode based on the faces I'm looking at. <laughs> Wait, but, Rob, I'm, I'm going to guess you hated this album, right, Rob? This Rob, is right. one of your worst. Yeah. Yeah. We'll compare SAT scores at the end, too, so you, the listener, can decide. <laughs> oh, Ow. Oh. Ouch. So, music for the formative years. You should oh, also yeah. add penis size to that, to that comparison. <laughs> just, so, just so we can really close all the cases once and for all. <laughs> Okay, but before we get into Bob, lovely Bob, which I'm excited about, and we do our introductions, I wanted to bring up a quick bit of listener mail. Keep in mind that if you like what you're hearing, folks, if you're listening for the first time, or if you're an old old hand at this, listening to us gab about albums, we would love to hear from you. You can write us an email with your complaint, your correction at 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com, or you can shoot us over a review on your various podcast services. We really appreciate it. It helps us get the word out. So today we have some listener mail. Listener Carlos writes in, Hey dudes, great show. I always learn something by listening to you, so keep up the good work. I was just listening to the Tusk episode, and I nearly dropped my Microsoft Zune podcast player. <laughs> when I heard Phil call Everybody's Got Something to Hide set from Me and My Monkey, a late-night Paul experimental track, and Adam just let it pass by. Oh, that track is so quintessentially John Lennon, lyrically, so John sonically, Lennon. et cetera. Yeah. Adam's what Beatles song cred. I'm of that. Adam's Beatles cred is in serious jeopardy here. <laughs> I may have just zoned out because I don't know, maybe uh, there was a monologue going on that I just lost interest <laughs> in. Listening Sorry, to your Phil, oldest and dearest friends right. for an hour is <laughs> just pretty challenging. Out. I agree. Yeah, so, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll take that one. I mean, obviously, you know, even. Nobody bats a thousand, so what's this? Is I'm, I'm at like nine ninety seven now. Oh yeah, yes, that's that's so. what you're batting, Phil. Nine ninety seven. Anyway, he closes by saying, "Seriously though, love you guys. Please continue to complain about Clapton. Not enough people realize what a piece of garbage that guy is." <laughs> Carlos, you're my people. Thank you, yeah, Adam. The, what song am I thinking of there? There is a McCartney song that's all him, right? I mean, maybe that's it's why don't we do it in the road? Uh, One of those is like a yeah oh yeah what white album yeah yeah I thought you meant solo that feels like that might be yeah it's I him just hitting his hand on his lap for the drums I think you guys are just digging yourselves an even deeper grave here uh, you're right. you just stop knowledge. Rob if you uh, if you're editing this let's take it back and make us all sound genius oh, okay cool yeah. I'll put on yeah. the genius auto tune filter yeah <laughs> and I might want to leave that on for the rest of this episode as previously mentioned so. <laughs> 
we are talking about Bob Dylan's 1965 release, Bringing It All Back Home. I just want to set the scene and then play a song real quick, and then I want to get your reactions to it. Bob Dylan, leader of the folk movement. Imagine, this is 1965. I think we have a tendency to conflate the late 60s or the entire 60s with the late 60s. But in this time, music was quite square, I assure you. The Beatles had put out Hard Day's Night, but they were long, they were still a good year before recording Rubber Soul. And here you are, a hepcat wearing a turtleneck in Greenwich Village, and you are very self-important and you think you're pretty cool and pretty smart and pretty politically minded, and you love Bob Dylan for songs like Blowing in the Wind and Masters of War, and the new Bob Dylan record drops, and you put on the turntable, and the first song is Subterranean Homesick Blues, and this is what you hear. John is in the basement, mixing up the medicine. I'm on the pavement, thinking about the government. The man in a trench coat, batch out laid off. Says he's got a bad cough, wants to get it paid off. Look out, kid, it's something you did. God knows when, but you're doing it again. You better duck down the alleyway, looking for a new friend. The man in a coonskin cap in a pig pen wants $11 bills. You only got 10. Plants in the bed, but the phone's tapped anyway. Maggie says the man is say they must bust an early man. Orders from the DA. Look out, kid, don't matter what you did. But walk on your tiptoes, don't tie no bows. Better stay away from those that care around a fire hose. Keep a clean nose and wash the plain clothes. You don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. And you're pissed. <laughs> and you're confused. As maybe everyone on this call was, but I think that is the setting for what we have here. So I'm going to kick it around the room. I want to hear people's tweet length impressions of this record and their introductions. We're going to kick it to Tom first. All right. Thanks, everybody. This is Tom. Yeah. It was hard to put a tweet length review for this album together, mostly because this is just it's like a snapshot of an extraordinarily productive time in the life of one of the best lyric writers of all time, but he's moving into a different style of lyric writing, a little bit more of that sort of stream of consciousness style. I gotta say, he, he mostly hits home runs, but there are definitely a few notable exceptions. I think that I judge this album a little bit more harshly than I should because people have the tendency to want to read into everything and try to find these deeper meanings in Bob Dylan songs. Like everything he says has to be this sort of prophetic, um, really point. And it's like, some of these are just like word salad nonsense. And I still really like them. I like the word salad nonsense. It works, but I, I take issue maybe with that. There's this super deep meaning to subterranean homesick blues or something like that, which is like, Hey man, the guy could just be spitting nonsense and having fun. There's nothing wrong with that. That was way more than a tweet length review, but that's where I, that's where I came in. <laughs> Fair enough. We're going to revisit that topic. I'm excited to get in deeper into that one, Tom, because I think I mostly agree with you on that. Adam, let's throw it to you. Sure. Hey, this is Adam. Current mood? Unimpressed. Oh, this is going to get that's chippy. My, that's my tweet. This is going to get yeah, real. This is going to get one, real yeah, chippy. Sorry. Be prepared to be told you're wrong by Rob for like an hour and a oh, half straight. Nothing new there, right? <laughs> I I uh, I'm ready. I've <laughs> I'm prepared. Phil, let's hear from you. My tweet length review is Adam is wrong and his ears need tuning. 
<laughs> just like a couple of the guitars on this album as well. Show. No time for tuning, Adam. No time. <laughs> no, no. We have three days. Go. Hey. Okay, this is Rob here, and my tweet length review is Bob Dylan invents rap music. There, I said it. <laughs> no, I'm just. Joking. I have a note. I'm just oh, sorry, joking. I'm just joking about that. My real tweet length review is: This is a songwriter's record, so it has to be taken as such. There happens to be a band in the room sometimes, but that aspect <laughs> is more important culturally than sonically. The focus here, I think. And the focus of our conversation is going to be about breaking down pointless boundaries, including the ones that Bob Dylan had set up for himself, with a side dish of trying to annoy the hell out of the Hepcats. You don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. So, Rob, I'm going to correct you on this one here. As much as I do like Bob Dylan, I like his lyrical style. I think that you have to credit the birth of rap music with a band called the Jubilaires that came out in the 40s and 50s. If anybody has the opportunity to listen to like some Jubilaire stuff, uh, listen to this song called Noah. You can go back and listen to it. It is totally like you just put a beat behind it and it's like a modern rap song, but it's like a bunch of like, you know, black dudes in suits doing lots of like home, home, home background while one guy's doing like a nice like kind of scat singing over it. Just check that out. Interesting. Yeah, I will check that out. Well, to be clear, and we can just we can just roll right into it. I, I totally was joking because even Bob Dylan would freely admit that something like Subterrain Homesick Blues or this cadence of songwriting was very much based on the work of Chuck Berry, specifically a Chuck Berry song called Too Much Monkey Business, which interestingly, I was into. I feel like I haven't listened to Chuck Berry now in about 30 years, but when I was a very young man, I listened to a bunch of Chuck Berry for some reason. Maybe it was the influence of the film Back to the Future. I'm not really sure. But Too Much Monkey Business is a great tune. You were just trying to get invited to all the cool parties by being like, hey, you guys, you fan of Memphis? Yeah, it's a great song. <laughs> okay. So... All right, well, I, so let's just get into it. A little bit of background on Bob, although with such a storied career, I do want to really try to keep the focus on just what was going on with this record, right? So I'll try to try to ground it. But just for your FYI, he was born with a different name. His real name is Robert Zimmerman. He adopted the name Dylan based on just wanting to have a stage name, partially and to obscure his background, which you're going to see is kind of a theme with him. He does not like to explain himself, whether in interviews, and this has been consistent throughout his life. He likes to keep mystery. His The goal of his lyric writing is, is the same. He's from middle-class Jewish parents in Hibbing, Minnesota. So he is, I can confidently say, the best musician to ever come from Minnesota, bar none. <laughs> <laughs> confidently. Boosh. Step aside, Husker Waiting do. for the listener mail. <laughs> Waiting for the listener mail, mail there. And I think it's worth mentioning that this, this record is still... A little bit pre-rock and roll, Bob. So I agree. You're in. You're seeing a time of transition, and there are a few caveats to how this was made. But it was the first time that he put any electric instruments, or really any other instruments other than himself and his acoustic guitar and his harmonica, on a record. He'd already had a good amount of success with just him and that acoustic guitar and that harmonica clipped in front of his mouth, which I'm sure we'll talk about. So this was really experimentation for him, and it really pissed his fans off. You'll hear these stories about Bob Dylan going to the Newport, Rhode Island Folk Festival, this big folk festival that had helped make him earlier in his career. Now, admittedly, we're talking about like three years before all this happened. Everything happened quickly in the 60s, I always find. People made records quickly. Fame came and went very quickly. But anyway, the Newport Folk Festival, which had made him, he returned 
this summer after this was released in 1965 with an electric band and he was booed I think continually for like the first several songs people were very shocked and not into it and there's actually a scene in that Martin Scorsese documentary called No Direction Home he's up there with the band by the way meaning Levon Helm and Rick Mm -hmm. Danko and company and I think he gets booed all through the first song which is Maggie's Farm and then in the little song break, somebody yells out Judas at him. And he just <laughs> and he turns around to the band and he says, play it fucking loud. And then they launch into Like a Rolling Stone. So that gives you a little sense of his attitude towards that. But he was getting booed pretty harshly. I, I've got to admit, if somebody called me Judas from the crowd, I would definitely take that as a, like, that would definitely motivate me. Yeah. <laughs> for, like, for oh, we're sure. doing this. Yeah, yeah, yeah we're totally. doing this. Let's feel, go, boys. Yeah. It reminds me just just slightly, we always have to wrap it back to our band experience, when we were finishing up that show in Davis, California, oh, yeah. I'm sure you guys all recall, and we had, had, we had some ups and downs in the band The Chop, but that night we had played pretty much to the best of our ability. I, we kind of all knew on stage that we had done a pretty good job. Maybe we still sucked, but you know, for us, we were doing well. But someone came up to that stage, and they slapped the bar napkin down right at my feet, right as we were finishing the last song. And as I looked down, as we were finishing the last chorus of the last song, the bar napkin had written on it, Dear Band, You Suck. <laughs> Sorry, I yeah. shouldn't laugh. And I just remember smiling. We kept that napkin for a long time because we all yeah. really liked it. Now, I think that if the... <laughs> well, depending on how your night went, right? You yeah. had a great night, so you smiled. If you had had a bad night and they'd written mm, that on that, you right. probably would put your foot through their teeth. Let's be right. honest. Right, exactly, exactly. So... Yeah, so th- there, there's that out there. So I, I think I think that's part of the ethos behind this record, and I think that's important. Let's just look at the release dates really quickly, because like I said, things happen fast, and I think this needs to be put in some really quick cultural context. So he records this in January of 1965. It gets released in March of 1965. Keep in mind that his last two records had come out respectively in January of 1964 and August of 1964. So he's already on a pretty fast clip of turning out what many would consider, you know, classic records or at least classic songs on those records. And then he releases this one in March of 1965. And by August of 1965, he's released the follow-up Highway 61, which has the aforementioned Like a Rolling Stone on it. So these things are rolling out really quickly. I mentioned the Beatles earlier in the call. Dylan and the Beatles had met just a little earlier this year, or maybe right around the time this was recorded. It might have been between the recording and the release. But just to give you a sense, supposedly Dylan introduced them to to drugs and marijuana and kind of sent them in a little bit of a more of a druggy direction. Conversely, Dylan was also influenced by the Beatles. But just so we're clear, Help hadn't even come out yet when this was was being recorded and released. Help wouldn't come out until August of 1965. So this is very still very Beatlemania Beatles, right? So there was not, like, the the 60s as we, I think, think of them had not happened yet. There was no Jimi Hendrix yet. There was no post-India trippy Beatles. It was it was all pretty straight ahead. And so breaking convention, there was a lot of conventions to be broken, is the point of my story. That's a good mile marker. Good mile marker for me to kind of think about timelines. Definitely. Oh, you, you put it in the Beatles, and I'm probably, and I'm, I'm honing in on it, so. And I like the the context that I, I sort of got while listening to it and then doing the research on it, that the first time that he ever did any other instrumentation, because it still sounds like 
a guy who's just used to doing like a straight ahead one take and acoustic guitar, but he just threw a bunch of other people in there. There's not overdubs. It's not like it's not like taking advantage of the studio situation with electric well, instrumentation. It's taking advantage of it a little bit. I would. I. I, I agree with you, Tom. I, I. I'm not. I'm not pushing back. But you do get like you get a true stereo mix on some of these songs, right? Which is anathema to uh, what came out right before this, like another side of Bob Dylan. Yeah, yeah. Like, no. It's like every si- song on that record, like just one man, one guitar. I, I agree. They, they were close mic and stuff. It wasn't like they were doing the wall sure. sound, one mic in a room thing, but it still didn't sound like, like he could have taken more advantage of it. But also the compressed timeline sure. maybe made that impossible. I was trying to like calculate in my head the amount of hours that they spent recording in the studio for this, and it's like 10 or 11 hours or something like that. It's really a short amount of time. Yeah, sounds like it. It was made in three days, and unlike, I think it was just, it was the style at the time. I sound like Grandpa Simpson. It, <laughs> it wasn't for budget constraints. You know, Dylan was doing well with his record label at that point. He could have spent more time if he wanted to. But this has always been kind of his ethos. So, yes, I think he was getting used to playing with other people. And so you have this extremely loose couple takes only. People haven't rehearsed. They didn't re- rehearse at all, which I think comes through. And people are just trying to keep up with the darn song. But it was purposeful. One of the things I found was interesting. So he's working with this producer whose name is Tom Wilson. He had worked with him for the last couple records, too. But around this time, they were they were purposely thinking in this slightly experimental way. Like, how do we add electric instrumentation to acoustic stuff? And some of the early experiments that they did, uh, based on what this guy Tom Wilson wanted to do, were just trying to overdub a band on acoustic tunes that had already been recorded. Right. But they didn't really like the results of that. Interestingly, that approach ended up working just great for a later tune that Tom Wilson produced, which was The Sounds of Silence by Simon and Garfunkel. That is literally just a Simon and Garfunkel tune that then later a band played on top of and it was became a big hit. Well, one thing I one thing that I like did not know and sort of very recently learned just through looking at his picture on Wikipedia, Tom Wilson was a black dude. And you talk about what the context of like America was at the time. There was a, there was a possibility they could yeah. use the same bathroom. Like that, maybe that was more of a radical statement than uh, I think a lot of people in the modern day times would give it credit for to be like working with a guy that is a black dude. In well, especially if you're in a touring band, like that shit is gonna change state to state. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. 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 Fair enough. Well, and Dave so- Brubeck famously in the early '60s was was refused. They, they wouldn't let some of his musicians into the venues and he, you know, refused to play those spots. So, yeah, you're right, Phil. Yeah. Early to mid 60s, they're, they're getting close, you know, shut out of uh, shut out of venues, I'm sure. Apparently, don't the Beatles deserve a lot of credit for that? They refused to play segregated venues when they toured the U.S. And so a lot of the places were desegregated for the first time so that the Beatles could play there. And then after that, it was like, well, you know, the place didn't burn down. So maybe, maybe we should <laughs> not be twice the money. Of shit. <laughs> right. Like, you know, yeah. yeah. I think there was just a, also a, an inflection point in the music business with the Beatles. Be, we were right in smack in the middle of Beatlemania. The Beatles showed up in America in 1964, right, and went on this tour. And I think it just redefined a lot of 
not, not only did it open the gate for the British invasion and a lot of bands like the Beatles to come through, and Bob Dylan himself mentioned that he was he was very influenced by listening to I Want to Hold Your Hand and going, like, oh, that's the cool stuff you can do when you pair with other musicians. Like, I want to explore that more. I don't want to be in this box anymore. This is really interesting. But certainly the culture changed, too, about yeah how much show promoters could make, how much record producers could make, how many records they could sell. All that stuff. But I I agree to have a black man in the producer's role in particular, because there's a lot of the band that plays on this record is also African-American. But particularly the producer role is is an interesting one that that that, that shows something. Yeah. Yeah. He's like the he's the boss, right? (laughs) Yeah. The producer's like the boss in in the studio, which makes me question the boss on some of these (laughs) decisions then. Right. So you said it was deliberately unrehearsed. I get it. You want a live vibe. I know jazz does that at times, but you would at least give your guys a chart or at least say, hey, we're going to sit on this chord for eight bars or four bars. It, it is very obvious that Dylan is might be facing them in the studio and they're watching his hands and like trying to yep. react to how he decided to sing the song that take, which to me, like you could with a minute or two of refining and maybe writing it down on a piece of paper, you could have a tighter song. But- before we dive into to just ripping this apart, and like, you know, I love this record, so but I'm still going to rip it apart for fun. Uh, there's a really interesting timeline piece still that we haven't touched on, which is like what's happening in Woodstock, New York from 1965 to 1970, right? So Dylan records this record, not in Woodstock, but is basically retreating to Woodstock after this record. That's where, I don't want to say he's living there. I don't know that for a fact, but he's spending time in Woodstock with the band. This is where they currently live from like 65 to 68 or so. And then that will dovetail directly into the All Things Must Pass era, where George Harrison and Eric Clapton and all the members of the band sort of pivot over to working on that project. So records that are recorded in Woodstock, New York in remote studios include the band, the band, uh, the band, uh, or All Things Must Pass, much of, I believe, Blonde on Blonde. Is Blonde on Blonde the one right after this? Or is it High- no. Highway 61? Well, so what, what happened in pretty quick succession is he released this record. He immediately went, he didn't tour. He went back into the studio and recorded Highway 61 almost like very shortly after. So very similar process, similar time frame. Then is when he goes on tour. They make that tour film of him that we mentioned on the Bell and Sebastian episode, Don't Look Back. And then he comes back from that. And he gets in a really bad motorcycle, motorcycle accident. accident. And at that, plus him just being, I think, sick of fame and people asking him questions, like Tom had already mentioned, this idea that they have to read into every lyric. What is this about? What is this about? He, from the beginning of his career, as far as I can tell, has absolutely abhorred those kinds of questions, just thinks they're so dumb and gives journalists nonstop shit about them. And so he basically retired from public life. That's when he goes to Woodstock basically mm-hmm. living side by side with the band and all those other and all those great other things happen i agree by the way that retirement from public life is still in existence basically right you don't see pictures of like bob dylan out at like you know on the town in manhattan having dinner no. so he seems like he's yeah, a dude, total he's not like hit, yeah he's not like hitting bars with beck after the grammy yeah it's like, not like <laughs> oh look there's bob dylan on the on, the, on court side at the lakers hanging out with jack Nicholson. <laughs> he is a famous <laughs> crab for sure yeah and he's, as far as I can tell, it's been consistent. So one more thing we got to say, because it gets lost real easily in the mix. I'm sure you looked up the date of this man's birth. But when he is recording this album, he is 23 years old. 
which just yeah, seems insane, insane based on what's on the tape to me. And and even the stuff he's talking about, which means when he's writing and recording songs like Blowing in the Wind, this is such old man vibes, everything about the songwriting, in a, in a, in a very positive way, in my opinion. But he's such a young guy. I think he's always been like that. I watched the Don't Look Back tour documentary this week, and he gives he gives a lot of shit, and he doesn't give a lot of answers. To, to your point, though, it has lasted all the way up until he's now 80. He recently received and is the first musician ever to receive the Nobel Prize for Literature. And when you do that, they invite you to Sweden. Stockholm. Yeah, Stockholm. Yeah, it must be right. Stockholm to give a speech, to take your reward, and he declined to show up. He, did, <laughs> he submitted a speech in writing, which they printed, where he rambles on about literature for a while. But he did not. He did. He's like, no, I'm not showing up to that. So he is truly a recluse. I agree. I got to say, we we talked before about like, could you have a beer with this guy? But he seems like he'd be pretty fucking insufferable to hang out with. I got to (laughs) say genius, lyrical genius. But I can't imagine that he'd ever just be like, oh, that's a beautiful sunset. You know, I, I can't imagine that coming out of Bob Dylan's mouth. I think he'd be like, oh, the pollution that the fucking capitalist pigs are putting out there. I've come I ar- think we'd be okay. Actually, I disagree. I've come around on that one. I used to think, oh, this is not a guy I want to have a beer with. He seems like a dick. But I no longer think he's like a dick. I think now after watching more of this footage of him, getting a little more of his vibe down, I read his memoir and stuff. What I do think, I think he would blow you. If you tried to talk about music or his music with him, he would blow you off immediately. He would be a dick to you. But if you were, I think he just wants to relate on a very, I think he'd be cryptic no matter what, but I don't necessarily think he would be impolite to you in any way, shape, or form. And I, I just think that's a, maybe a subtle distinction. Well, yeah, if we're talking about my level for wanting to have a beer with somebody is they have to be openly hostile to me for me to not want to do it, then <laughs> sure, he probably would not be openly hostile, but I don't think I would enjoy myself during that time. I'm just I'm just saying you you mentioned it like he was going to be ranting and raving about some cause. I, I just I don't really see that happening either. Although the songs because I think he feels like the so songs what you're saying speak. Is he's not Bono. Bono seems like a dick too. I <laughs> totally. <laughs> I think the vibe is 100% different. I think that Bob Dylan's take of course I don't know him personally, so I'm speculating, but I think he feels like the songs have said everything he wants to say. So he doesn't have a ton to say. That's that's how he feels. And so the songs sometimes feel like he's sermonizing. I un- I understand why people might dislike that to a certain extent. And sometimes they're just his random thoughts collected. The word salad that you mentioned, Tom, and they're not really to be looked into much deeper than that or interpret them as you will because that's the point of impressionist writing and poetry and painting even is you're just supposed to interpret it from from your perspective. That's the whole point of it, right? Not to be explained. Sure. You know, Rob, when you when you mentioned the timing of the release of this record, I thought you were going to say something else. I'm excited that this is the first time I get to drop this on the podcast. But this was released on March 22nd, which 28 years later would be the date of the greatest fish show of all time, 322.93 Sacramento. <laughs> so if you guys haven't checked that out, that is an absolute ripper. Totally relevant. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, just 32293fish.net, you're welcome. Yeah. Irrelevant, <laughs> but also not an, it's not an invalid point. That is a great show. <laughs> Before we start getting into specific songs, I want to make one more general comment about this album, which is that I mentioned it earlier. He's, you know, sort of in the beginning phases of incorporating electric instrumentation and other people into his, into his music. And... For me, I think that it lost some 
sense of sincerity. Mm. And maybe it is just the way that it is presented in some of those earlier ones, just him and naked and an acoustic guitar. They sound, they came off as more sincere. And I liked the songs, but I don't think that they had the same level of maybe emotional weight uh, or seeming sincerity as the other ones did. We can explore that as we go through some of the individual songs that we're going to talk about, but that was one of my general impressions. See, I think I think of him as having just a couple different modes that he's in, but I, I don't really associate him with some sincerity overall. I do think he likes... He's, he's actually goofier. I understand he's not always goofy, but... That's interesting, because that's just not a word I would have associated with him. Okay, so as we alluded to, it was a three-day recording process. It's considered a half-electric, half-acoustic album, with approximately the first half of the record, literally the first side of the record, being with an electric band, and the second half acoustic. They, they don't That rule breaks a couple times, as, as you'll see, but that's approximately what was going on. And through those three days, we talked about the band being unrehearsed. Bob Dylan was unrehearsed. And this is this was not a new feature for him. He continued this way indefinitely, as far as I can tell, which is to say that all his stuff is in sketch form, kind of at all times. So when he shows up at the recording studio, it's the true, this is a photograph of what's on my mind at this moment. He changes phrasing, he changes lyrics, he changes when a chord change might hit or if a chord change might hit. The songs, the way they're structured, they're extremely simply structured, as I'm sure you noticed, very few chords, very few changes, things like that. But I think that's done in a very purposeful way so that he can stay really loose with just this. I think everything's always been a little bit stream of consciousness. You know, Rob, I'm really glad you said that because everybody on this call has been in a band with me. And I think that just validates that I've always been right and you guys are just missing the changes. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm going to relate it back to the Bell and Sebastian episode. It comes from a guy who's just used to having the freedom of playing by himself. And it doesn't matter when you make that chord change. It doesn't matter if you extend a line too long. If you're the only one who has to know when the change is coming, then, you know, listen, if you if you were doing your own stuff, Phil, I'd say, yeah, put the yeah. changes wherever the hell you want. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Phil's memoir is going to be, no, you're missing the changes. Yeah. <laughs> a, a, a Phil memoir. Yeah. That's good. That's good. That's really good. <laughs> this I just am trying to convey that this was not at all pre-planned. The acoustic electric very, thing. They showed up. Yeah, obvious. they showed up at the studio. He didn't know how he wanted the songs to be, and they just figured out the best. He, they did multiple takes of each song, and when I say multiple takes, I don't. I'm not referring to the same approach to the song more than once. I'm referring to different tempos, different instrumentation, just all kinds of different stuff, right? And this just seems to be how he works. I've heard about him working on through the '70s, and he just he continued to work with other human beings. To your point. But he continued to maintain that level of, well, I'm the only important human being in the room. So I think I can fault him for that to a certain extent. But that's his style and it seems to work, right? So let's uh, maybe we should talk about the individual tunes. We played a snippet of the opening track, Subterranean Homesick Blues. Let's drop back in on that song again. Oh, get born, keep on short pants, romance. Learn to dance, get dressed, get blessed Try to be success Please her, please him Buy gifts, don't steal, don't whip Twenty years of schooling and they put you on the day shift Look out, kid, they keep it all hit Better jump down a manhole, light yourself a candle Don't wear sandals, try to forge the scandals Don't wanna be a bum, you better chew gum The pump don't work cause the vandals took the handle 
I was shocked at how short this song was. When I actually it does feel much longer. Went back in and looked at it. I was like, this song is so short compared to what I thought it was. And then I was trying to figure out why. And I think that it is words per second. I think that on the I did I did a count of words per second of this, and it's all right, Ma. I'm only bleeding just to see which one would be the worst. This is 2.3 words per second in the song. It's a lot of fucking. Words There's harmonica <laughs> solos air quote solos on this song too so like that's... oh there's harmonica in every song don't worry <laughs> I, I made sure to capture <laughs> yeah. that that wasn't at all annoying by track 13 <laughs> but i i like this song is action-packed i really do think it's great i think there's a lot of really cool anthemic lines this is one of those songs that is really fun to try to memorize the words to kind of like it's the end of the world as we know it that rem song it's like it's just fun to know the words and like it's a challenge to get them out while you're sort of listening and driving and like trying to sing along to the song it's a really great song i i think that i i I love this song tom i love this song and what i love about and there's other dylan songs that sort of do this for me but they they like simulate a flow state. Like they simulate that state of mind where like you're working hard on something and you lose time and you're just, you're, but you're both in it and you're sort of like, just like above it. Right. And this song I think does that for me where it's just like, it's coming at me so fast that I, I am sort of just, I don't even know what the words are, but I'm totally like just lost in the feeling of it. And uh, I love it. I also love the early stereo mix. I think this is a very, very professional approximation of where stereo recording and mixing would land on what people would say is, oh yeah, that sounds good. If you listen to music from 1965 to 1970, they were willing to try insanely radical things with stereo mixing. And this sounds more like music that came out in the 70s, 80s, 90s in that way. 100%. This does not sound like a 1965 recording in terms of the studio approach and the technique. I I would give that to you. I think when I made the comment earlier. So he made a good choice in his producer. He made a good choice in his producer. Absolutely. Yeah, I, again, this is, we talked about this on the Rage Against the Machine album. I believe, Rob, you made the comment of it's a practice of throwing out semi-anthemic statements and just seeing what sticks. And it <laughs> seems like sticks, this song yeah. is very much like that. Um, but oh, it works. Yeah. A lot of them stick. I think he has some great lines in this. Yeah, Adam, you want to comment? I, I only caught one line out of, you know, the 400 or whatever it was. It was the weatherman to know which way the wind blows. That was the only one that stuck out uh, in my head just as he, he rambled through them. Uh, it's a good track one. I'll give you that, right? Like, it's upbeat. It at least caught my attention. So, What's that? we, we have already talked about all the other full things. Of black so. suit talking that the heat put plant in the bed. But, like, yeah, it's fucking great. It's really good. I think it's, I think it's excellent, and it really made a big impression on me when I was young. I got to this record real early in my record listening career. It was one of my first breaks from just buying what, what was on MTV at the time, listening to my parents' record collection. And this one in particular, I memorized all these lyrics when, when I was 14 or 13. I'm picturing you, by the way, Rob. I'm picturing the, the transition between you just like listening to Dr. Feelgood and you're like, let me, let me pop on some Bob. Joke, 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 joke. Yeah, right. Yeah, and I think one of, I've always thought one of Bob Dylan's great tricks, well, first of all, I think he's a... He's a subtle master of rhyme. I And I don't think his rhymes are subtle. I think his rhymes are really obvious, almost like from a rhyming dictionary in your face. But he somehow makes it work. 
a lot of the time. And he does use some inner line rhyme stuff, and that's where the, the rap comment maybe came from. But I, but the other thing I think he does is he he throws a lot at the wall, and then he lands, like he lulls you into complacency with silliness sometimes. And then he lands a haymaker, and it f- knocks you out like with something, with profundity. I don't necessarily think this is the absolute best version of, of that Agreed. Uh, example of that, but I think he does that kind of thing a lot, and I think he gets off some really good lines here. The one that always sticks with me is 20 years of schooling and they put you on the day shift. That feels that feels relevant today that to feels me. True. Yeah, it's pre- pretty solid. <laughs> yeah. Pretty solid line. All right, I'll give you that. But this is, I think it's just a badass electric blues, and listen, we can get right into the harmonica playing. Dylan is not a great harmonica player. I don't have any problem admitting that. Don't tell him that. But I don't think he's a bad. No, but I don't think he's a bad harmonica player. Just like I don't think he's at all a bad singer. I actually are there bad harmonica players though. The question is, are there good harmonica players? (laughs) Yeah, you're right. Right. All right. Stevie Wonder is the best harmonica player in the world. But still, I think the chromatic harmonica is a totally different instrument than the non-chromatic harmonica. Yes. So set set Stevie Wonder aside for a moment. But he's this. This is definitely a style, and I understand why that style is jarring. He's just blowing into it. And keep in mind, he's not using his hands, right? It's just on a little holder, sure, a, a Darth Vader holder in front of his face. So he is a little limited. I think he uses it a little too much. But I have to say, here, I think it has perfect little interstitial between the verse action to it, and I don't have, I don't inherently have a problem with it. It does fill the space nicely, and if you flash like way forward to a record like it's called Mozambique, right? The one with ISIS. No, Desire. 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 My bad. Mozambique is also on that record. Yeah, that's that's the one. Yeah, that's 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 Desire. Yeah, Desire crushes me. But if you jump forward to a record like Desire, you'll see that like they reach a place where he'll have like a violin, and there'll be an interplay between the harmonica and violin where it'll actually like blur the line sometimes. You'll, you'll ask yourself, like, what am I even listening to right now? So, like, it does go somewhere long term. So I do think he is listening to himself, like, with an open mind. On that okay, issue. so here's here's the grandiose point I want to make, is that Bob Dylan is a great artist because he is constantly trying to move forward in the context of himself. He kind of remains the steady point, his own expression, and he's true to himself, meaning harmonica stays in the game and acoustic guitar kind of stays in the mix for his entire career. But he's someone who is constantly striving for the next thing. By the time that he was known as this protest songwriter, he was already past that. He was like, I don't want to be known that way. Don't put me in a box, baby. I'm moving on. Oh, you're mad at you're mad at my change? All right, I'm on to the next change already. He kept refreshing the people he played with. He kept refreshing and trying different styles of music. He even tried different singing styles. <laughs> he keeps moving forward. And I think you have to give people credit for I'm that. A, I'm going to throw styles. Adam a bone on this one. He also, some, also, he also sometimes likes to refresh the lyrics and just do the song again. Like on Maggie's Farm, where he just <laughs> writes a completely different melody and lyrics in the same song, subterranean of sick blues, and puts yes. it as track three you on this record, <laughs> which also is a good song. So, I mean, I don't know if I like love this or hate this, but I mean, if you jump from one minute of subterranean of sick blues to one minute of Maggie's Farm, like it's the on same, the fly, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that, yeah. so, but that is a very tried and true approach to old school rock and roll. Chuck Berry's songs all are exactly the same, for same instance. key, yeah. I mean, it's all 12 bar. <laughs> blues yeah yes. uh, yeah i'll give you that <laughs> so i flat, right? Right. it's not about the chords a, phil it's about the message man <laughs> i think it's a valid criticism for sure but i also think bob Dylan would go would shrug his shoulders and go yeah okay and moving on like he's turning out songs at such a fast clip he clearly does not care 
one one more thing before we move on from Subterranean is I wanted to mention the guitar player, this guy Bruce Langhorn. I'm gonna give you a little of this guy's history, and then and then I want you to click a link that I'm gonna send you. So this guy was a teenage gangbanger who most likely hearsay stabbed a guy, then got sent off to live in Mexico for a couple years. He blew off a couple fingers on his right hand with a firecracker. This is the guy playing guitar now. Take that picture I just put in your head, and now click on his Wikipedia link and check out the photo. Is that what you were expecting? Oh, wow. No, but you can definitely see the fingers that he blew off there in that no, picture. No, he looks like a very kind, gentle guy. Oh, I feel wow. like I would expect this guy to be like... Uh, to run running a, a hotel success- in the Caribbean. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would have said a pose with a food truck. Right. <laughs> He's he's like ah yeah you, you need a kombucha mother I got a few kombucha mothers right. if you need one <laughs> right <laughs> in the picture we're referring to he's sort of mid dance with a large tambourine yeah <laughs> he just looks like a happy chap anyway I think the guitar playing is actually pretty cool here but you can definitely tell that you can tell you tell they're trying to keep up with him I'm glad you mentioned Maggie's farm we didn't put it on the focus list I was tempted to put that as my low point because partly because I think that song is so overrated. And even Rage Against the Machine, aforementioned Rage Against the Machine, covered it on their Covers album. I don't, I don't get why that's a good song, personally. I've always found that to be one of the more boring tunes. But instead of that as a low point, I chose Bob Dylan's 115th Dream. Let's play a snippet. I was riding on the Mayflower and I thought I spot some land. I yelled for Captain E-Rib, I have you understand. Who came running to the dick, said boys forget the wheel. We're going over yonder, cut the engines, change the sails. Haul on the bowline, we sang that melody like all tough sailors do when they're far away at sea. I think I'll call it America I said as we hit land I took a deep breath I fell down, I could not stand Captain Arab, he started Writing up some deeds He said let's set up a fort And start buying a place with beads Just then this cop comes down the street Crazy as a loon He throws us all in jail For carrying hoppers so my premise here was that there's plenty to make fun of. This represents wacky rambling Bob Dylan. He's trying to be clever. I actually think he does get off some clever lines, so I've come to like this version of Dylan to a certain extent. But I think this is very easy to make fun of. What are your guys' thoughts? This song sucks. <laughs> Why is it so long? Why that's my that's my first note on the song. Why is the song so long? Why? It's terrible. When people all right, we've talked about this with several other artists. People who hate Bob Dylan thinks that all Bob Dylan sounds like this. And I if all Bob Dylan yeah. sounded like this, I would hate Bob Dylan. <laughs> yeah. This even would, has yeah, the false start, right? This even has the, like, wacky Bob Dylan, like, oh, he just hey, burns we, 25 seconds of fucking wrong. up. All right. <laughs> yeah, Took right. too many amphetamines today. <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> There was a description of, of this song on Wikipedia. They've got, you know, so, some quick little analyses of the songs. This this was, whoever wrote it kind of sums up the way I feel about this album in that attributing way more uh, uh, importance than, than it actually deserves. 
This song can be best read as a highly sardonic, nonlinear, historical, dreamscape, parallel, parallel cataloging of the discovery, creation, and merits, or lack thereof, of the United States. Get lost. I don't, like, come on, man. Yeah, that's <laughs> like, if, if you take that mindset on every song, like, oh, well, this is actually represents, uh, I, I don't know. Well, yeah, Just rubbed like, me the yeah, wrong we, we way. We talked about it on the Green Day episode, right? Like, what was American, uh, what was that called? American Idiot. American Idiot. Yeah, American Idiot. If you go out of your way to give Billy Joe every possible, you know, turn, if you just Best give him read. credit for right. everything, right? Mm-hmm. You you read past everything, it's a much better record, right? But like, I personally, sort listen, of face value, it's okay. I think personally on this song, when he says... I ordered some Suzette. I said, could you please make that crepe? He was referring to the tragedy of the genocide of the Native Americans. Clearly, guys. <laughs> Duh. I, I think that line is Riley funny, by the way. I like that line. That line is so, that line is so dumb. I think, no, dog, I think he's... no, dog. That's about the French Revolution, followed by the War of 1812, and like, we should but, be working. But okay, but, but, but here's what I want to <laughs> say. I don't even know what no. I'm talking about. I know nothing about history. <laughs> I, I agree with you guys. This It smacks of the English teacher in high school reading too much symbolism. Oh, hold Holden Caulfield's sister is called Phoebe because Phoebe is the goddess of the moon and she's a hunter and she's hunting. For, it's like, shut up. Like, Jane Salinger <laughs> yeah. didn't mean any of that stuff. Yeah. Right? I, I read this article sometime back where someone, I think it was back in the 60s, had written a letter to all these famous alive authors at the time. Obviously, they were alive if they were writing to them and asked them about this question of, hey, do you, did you put symbolism of the type we just mentioned into your books or do you think that's a real thing that authors implant? And he got some varied answers, but but across the board, people were like, no, I purposely left it. I, I just wrote what I wrote. I wrote what I felt like writing, and it's your job to interpret it however you want. Don't leave me out of it, basically. And I guarantee you Bob Dylan would say the same thing. I guarantee it. So I think he would agree with you that this is a little ridiculous. And in fact, I think sometimes he's being overly ridiculous. I'm not exactly defending the song, but he's being overly ridiculous on tracks like this to play against that wise sage persona that he had for so long where people were just adoring of him he's he didn't literally have his own he's not the beatles but people are definitely crying outside his hotel room like hoping to catch a glimpse of him around this time and it's definitely affecting his psyche in a strange way let's put it that way uh my my favorite complaint about this record though is it's extremely cacophonous there's literally two guitar solos going simultaneously right when the record starts one pan left and one pan right, and they definitely haven't been listening to each other. <laughs> There's no cross bleed in those monitors. They're definitely just going, going well, yeah, to town. Like, like in all seriousness, like, like in, in a very serious way, um, let's, let's check it up. Uh, so it's called Shape of Jazz to Come. So Shape of Jazz to Come came out in 1959. This is a huge influence on Jerry Garcia and the whole West Coast movement as far as like improv goes. Shape of Jazz to Come is at times completely unlistenable because it is literally two bands. There's a song on the record that is literally two bands playing at the same time, one in mono hard band left, the other in mono hard band right. It's insane, but there is something about that that had a huge influence on the creators that would follow because that record comes up over and over and over again. So I do think there's maybe something about just like what's hip, especially him being a dude who's probably moving to New York City from... Duluth. Minnesota. Where did he come from? Like, he yeah, he came from smaller Duluth. town. Yeah. yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, you're right. Some of this is just about taking chances for chances' sake and figuring out what's even possible in this in these very early days of but, the recording industry. Uh, but I industry. would say chances for chances' sake. I would say like there's something happening culturally that's allowing Bob Dylan to think that these are de-risked choices. These are lower risk choices than they appear to be, right? I I, I don't get that. <laughs> you want me to talk about shape of jazz that's gone again? Right. I thought we were talking about that fish, that fish show. Still, never mind. Three twenty-two oh, ninety-three oh, Sacramento. Right, sorry. Don't I'm miss all... it. Don't sleep on that. I liked when he said, "I went into a cab. I went out the other door." This Englishman said, "Fab." I thought it was cute. <laughs> That's a good line. <laughs> the one about the funeral parlor and the guy giving him his card and said, "Call me if they die." That was kind of fun. But overall, it felt like a "Whose line is it anyway?" bit that went on for way too long. You remember they would line yeah. up in a row and all have to like continue the song and they'd pass it to each other. It felt very much like that. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. You guys clearly experience lyrics in a very different way than me. Like you're you're taking on a sort of like linear experience is what you're describing to me. Okay, where like you're listening to the song like it's a linear story. Whereas like, I almost feel like I'm watching like a, just like a screen flash images. And I'm just like, my emotions are just changing randomly based on these little snippets that are like casting these totally random images into my mind. I sense no story. I, is what I kind of know what you mean. And I think that's actually, I I think that's a lot of the, this songwriting style is meant for that. I think Bob Dylan, 60 vignettes all at once kind of a yes. thing we're, we're right. transitioning into bob dylan's version of impressionistic poetic songwriting where he's just trying to paint this very broad picture so i relate to that to a certain extent for the record i i actually like this song i'm a huge bob dylan fan i love this record but i understand why this is bad also you know what i mean that that's that's where i'm coming from i think he gets off a lot of funny lines in there but it's a little clever for clever sake goes on too long and it's definitely cacophonous so i certainly don't think it's I wouldn't put it on the top 25 mix to try to convince you to like Bob Dylan or anything like that. Okay, moving right along to side two. Mr. Tambourine Man. We're going to slow things down a little bit for the uh, for all the couples out there. We're going to go through the acoustic side of the album. Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, play a song for me. I'm not sleepy and there's no place I'm going to Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, play a song for me In the jingle jangle morning, I'll come following you Though I know that evening's empire has returned into sand Vanished from my hand Left me blindly here to stand But still not sleeping My weariness amazes me I am branded on my feet I have no one to meet And the ancient empty streets Too dead for dreaming Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man Play a song for me I'm not sleepy and there is no place I'm going to. Well, this does have an extra guitar on it, for the record. Yeah. So it's not really the acoustic oh. side, but the ba- I guess the band steps away. Right? Right. <laughs> the band was out smoking and he quickly crammed in four songs. 
Yeah, the people got up close to really boo for this one. Right. That electric guitar just trashed it. <laughs> Speaking of poetic, impressionistic songwriting, this is, to my mind, and you shall not convince me otherwise, and if you say otherwise, I hate you, when we're done. <laughs> this is great. This is brilliant. It's painfully beautiful. It's evocative. If you don't agree, you haven't paid enough attention. This song gives me chills. It's excellent. This was one of the only ones that had a substantial melody that stuck that stuck out to me and correct me if i'm wrong but i feel like a, a lot of everything prior to this was very much just you know hang on the same note or maybe you're just going three notes in a row kind of that blue shuffle thing this was the first one that stood out as oh a melody that's gonna stick with me so i i did take well, that are you saying the first one or the only one because the i the first see one that, that stuck out the- to me so yeah, maybe first one that stuck out to me as, oh, I could latch onto a melody, but it wasn't until, whatever this is, eight songs in. I've always really, really liked the melody for Gates of Eden. I, I think that's a great melody. And he kind of does like, like, there's a lot of melodic movement in that song. Um, I will say the electric side has less of that. Then, well, um, it's all they're all blues changes, I think is right. what yeah. we can agree to, right? The first side is all blues changes so there's not that there's less melodic opportunity there but he sticks pretty close to the obvious choices melodically there for tambourine man i have always bob dylan he likes his abstractions in his lyrics right he there's a lot of abstractions in his lyrics sometimes you it gets so abstract that you lose any kind of narrative thread to it and it kind of takes away from its poignancy but I think he really nailed it on this one. And it, you're right, Rob. It does seem poignant, and it puts me in a mindset. I can picture some of these things happening here. I give a lot of credit also to Bruce Langhorn for his guitar work on this one. I think it's really subtle. I think it's really good. I think it actually helps to move the song along. I agree with if that, you're not paying attention, If you're not paying attention to it, you might think it's like chimes or like a almost a piano at time like yeah, right. yeah it's pretty yeah. subtle yeah it's very subtle yeah it's really beautiful you know the thing about the thing about this song that i find interesting and i, I just think it like it should it needs to be said and it needs to also be said as just like part of the bob dylan story really is like for me it's not that i, I don't want to say anything to disparage the song it's beautiful for me it sounds like the version that the songwriter passed to the birds that then they recorded the proper version of. Like, I'm more of like a production guy, right? Like, I'm more of a Steely Dan guy, right? So, like, in a way, like, this is beautiful and haunting in a way that to me is made more beautiful by the fact that I think of the birds version. You have something to compare it against. Yeah, right. and yeah. yeah, like like I don't think of the Dylan version on Bringing It All Back Home as the definitive version of the song. It feels like like a B cut or a cover in the same way that uh, All on the Watchtower. Watchtower. Yeah, same thing, same effect. Hey, So 
I, I hear what you're saying. I don't agree with this song in particular. I think this really benefits from the haunting stripped down sure. version that's here. But I think Dylan would agree with you because I did read an interview with him where he mentioned Jimi Hendrix's version of All Along the Watchtower. And I, I totally agreed with you. He's like, oh, yeah, clearly that's way better than what I did. It was <laughs> it was his. It was always his. Clearly, I was writing it for him to do that. Awesome. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Way to go, Jimmy. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. Well, and he, he is the creator of a lot of great source material. We talked about this, I think, on the Prince episode, partly because he is so feckoned and he's like constantly writing, constantly writing, constantly moving on to the next thing and not necessarily pausing to like hyper develop the idea into what its potential could be, which is one of the reasons why he is the guy that has given so many artists their number one. Year, years ago, I, uh, years ago, I read uh, Bob Dylan's one. And he said that there was a period where him and Jim Baez were living together, you know, like they obviously they were romantically entangled. Um, and he said he was trying to write no less than three songs a day, as was Joan Baez. In yeah. whatever year that yeah whatever like sixty three and sixty four whatever this years this would have been together. around this this would have been around this time actually yeah. yeah he said he was writing a thousand songs a year that's why many of the songs sound the same he said he had no problem with writing songs to the same like sort of cadence or rhythm or chord pattern he said him and Joan Baez are trading songs he said like you know if I I released sixty songs that year like I wrote a thousand you know. And so did yeah. Joan, right? Like so. Yeah. yeah. There's like, he's with Joan Baez in the Don't Look Back documentary, which documents him going to the UK on tour at the end of the summer in 1965. So a few months after this came out, and Joan Baez is with him on the tour, and they're hanging out constantly. So I think they were still romantically involved. But there's like scenes where they're just in the hotel room late at night. He's smoking a cigarette on a typewriter, typing. Yeah, cracking away a typewriter. And she's totally. and she's just playing a song, and they're just like collaborating that way. You know, it's very totally. he, yeah, yeah. He, yeah. In the book, he talked about like like the you know his memories are just like the smell of coffee and cigarettes and the clacking of typewriters. Like the con- that's that's his memory of like that time. Like in his life, and yeah, I was like, yeah. That? By by all accounts, yeah, cause he, yeah. To do that, you have to be writing constantly. There's another scene in that same film where he's just writing, he's just writing in the cab between the shows, or you know, whatever. Like he's just constantly like, oh, that's a line. Let me write that down. Oh, that's a line. Let me write that down. So let's. So just l- the discipline see, of that. No, no, totally. I I completely agree with you, and I think like just to take a second to talk about you know what it takes you know to be this great, and just because I brought up you know three twenty two ninety three several times now. <laughs> I know that there was an, a period where Trey was doing the same thing. He taught in that era, peak fish. He was talking about getting off stage, going to the back room and having the dude who, had, you know, who's his, his handler for the night would give him a tape of the night set and a list of the songs they actually played that night. No matter what the set list was, the songs they'd actually played that night, the songs they had played the night before and the songs they had played the last time they were in the city they would, had gone to. And he said he would start writing the set list immediately. He would go onto the bus, listen to the show, and start formulating the set list for the next show immediately. And I was like, that's Dis- discipline. Yeah, it's all right. Yeah, yeah. I'll give but that. That's, that's yeah. just what it takes, right? Yeah. Well, like, you know, to yeah. throw it to the world of, of professional sports, which we're all very familiar with. Very. I got into basketball recently over the pandemic, but people 
like all the teammates for Steph Curry will talk about how he will get done playing a full game of basketball that he has just given it his all. He's on his bike the whole time, just running, running, running. And he gets done and he goes into the locker room and puts a 35 pound plate on his back and starts doing push ups. Like right after the game. It's just that's yeah. what it takes to be the best. Way. You gotta go past the max, dude. Yeah. You gotta go to failure, you know? Yeah. Like. <laughs> so talking about going past the max, great segue opportunity there, Phil. This song should have ended. Uh, when that harmonica kicked in at 325, there should have been a fade on that harmonica right there. It's it is it's too long of a song. What is it? It's five minutes and thirty seconds long. The last verse of the song is objectively the worst verse of the song, and there's a harmonica solo that comes in at like 325. Oh yeah, and then there's one more verse, and it's not a good verse. And then there's more harmonica, and it ends. They should have just ended it on that original harmonica solo right there, cut it down to about a four-minute song. And they do plenty of that real quick fade-off. We're like, everybody's still going, all right, we're done here. And it kind of drains off. They could have done that there on the harmonica. Wait, wait. I I agree the harmonica is a little... You know, could could have been left off the track, but it, are you saying the last verse is the worst verse? That is my is the, that is my indication. This is the to dance beneath the diamond sky with one hand waving free, silhouetted yes. by the sea verse. Yes, that's the I best don't like verse. that verse. That's not the best verse. That's not that's not the best. Let verse. me forget about today until tomorrow. That is clearly the best verse. You're hundred nope. percent wrong. I am. I will stand by the fact that I'm not hundred percent wrong. I think you just I think you're just trying to stir shit up with that. <laughs> I'm not trying to stir I shit up. I don't like that last verse. I don't I think it's one of the more trite sentiments. The rest of the song is really good. It's got a lot to compete with. You're telling me that the lines that You're uh, telling me yes to dance beneath the diamond sky with one hand waving free is a trite sentiment? Uh yeah, I am. <laughs> that doesn't even make sense. <laughs> yeah, you're right, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> okay. All right. All right, let's move right along to It's All Right, Ma, I'm Only Bleeding. Darkness at the break of noon Shadows, even the silver spoon The handmade blade, the child's balloon Eclipses both the sun and moon To understand you know too soon There is no sense in trying Pointed threats, they bluff with scorn Suicide remarks are torn From the fool's gold mouthpiece The hollow horn plays wasted words Proves to warn that he not busy being born Is busy dying Temptation's page flies out the door You follow, find yourself at war Watch waterfalls of pity roar You feel the moan, but unlike before You discover that you just be one more person crying So don't fear If you hear A foreign sound To your ear it's all right, Ma, I'm only sighing. This is totally uh, coffee shop slam poetry for the 1960s. Wrong. What? 100% wrong. <laughs> this is dropping truth for six and a half minutes. Oh, this cuts. 
This is amazing. This blue 14-year-old Rob's mind. There are sure. lyrics on here? Hang on. Let me see what's on. <laughs> Again, which is... There's some, real, there some really anthemic lines probably on, this, on what? this song. What are you talking about? This is the... This is the most stripped down version where he's intending you to listen to just the lyrics. In fact, you said, and I went and checked, Adam, you said that there's harmonica on every track. Now, that is technically true, but on yeah. this track, there's just barely a, a whiff of harmonica. But there's it's just a still, because right I remember going through and thinking like, oh, I can't make the comment that there's harmonica on every, I found it. There's one moment he on gives here. It, he sneezes into it, or he coughs well, into it, like in between verses. There's... <laughs> There is literally there's one breath at like 140, and then and then again and then again at 320. But it's like he immediately thinks right. better. No, of it. uh, it's yes, like he can't yeah. help himself. He he's, he, yeah. he like it's like no no no. You, Bob, you said you weren't going to do this. Yeah. It was just like muscle memory. Just like went for it after he was done the verse. He was like oh no 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 shoot. This song's great. I, I really some of my favorite Dylan excellent. lines are in this song personally. Agreed. I can't. I actually can't believe you think this is trite slam poetry, Adam. That's just a raw well, opinion. I, like I said, I'm up. not a lyrics guy, man. I, I try my best to be, but I'm not as uh, not as English driven as as you find uh, English. What were your degrees in again? We had such high literary hopes for you. There you go. Jeez. I know. See, I'm I'm listening for stereo mixes and uh, and guitars and tuning, dude. You don't listen to this as like a one take and just be like. That's just an impressive one take from a mechanic standpoint that you could get all of those words out, not stumble over them in one take. That's impressive this, from this, the, just the standpoint of the where did this fall on the album? Because this was probably at the point where I started getting tired. I was just like, oh, OK, second to last. Okay, That's song. probably why I was a little little tired. <laughs> Didn't necessarily examine. I mean, it. it is seven minutes and 30 seconds long. So I think that if you have a, if I could lodge a complaint, it would be that this has more of a foot in Dylan's past than his future. This sounds a lot more to me like Masters of War, which is another excellent Dylan track. That's got to be a metal song, right? Good lines. (laughs) That's got to be a metal song, right? Dylan goes metal early on. I mean, the sentiment is quite metal. I don't know that tune. Sorry. Oh yeah, what's that? Uh, you do. It was on a Pearl Jam tape. I circulated. Oh, okay, all right. What's that line <laughs> at the end where he's like, "And I hope that you die, your death will come soon." And he said, I "Stand over your grave till I'm sure that you're dead." Like it's like the last <laughs> line intense. of the song. It's intense. Yeah, it's I, really intense. I remember being like twelve or thirteen and getting a Pearl Jam tape that had a cover of that on there. Maybe like, fuck, that's way harder than I even knew yeah. people could be. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I'm so weak. But okay, He's but back to back to it's all right, mom. Only bleeding. I I really think this actually is maybe my favorite track on the record. And this whole record kind of is what made me want to be a songwriter. I have to say, so I'm coming at it from that personal angle. But it also made me realize how daunting the task of being a songwriter was. He gets off so many good lines in this. The for them that think death's honesty won't fall upon them naturally, life sometimes must get lonely. I, the way he uses rhyme in this, I feel like on paper you would think it wouldn't work. You're like, how are you rhyming it so many times? It seems tr- it seems cheesy at a point. But no, it works. For them that must obey authority that they do not respect in any degree, who despise their jobs, their destinies, speak jealously of them that are free, do what they do just to be nothing more than something they invest in. <sighs> Crazy. Blowing my mind, Bill. I, I, do, I do agree. I am really into this Bob Dylan dare I say Eminem-esque, like intense slant rhyme. I think it's great. It doesn't bother me at all. Uh, I This song totally does it for... I will... I, I give Adam the... the like, it, it 
it's hard to stay with it the whole time. But to it's put long. to put the There's context on it, like I just growing up when music hit me hard, this is not what inspired me. And it's just different, different, you know, areas of yeah. your brain, you know, fire off when you get, you know, Rob, in your case, you got a good, some cool rhymes some cool lyrics, those fired. This did nothing for me when I was, you know, in high school still doesn't yeah. for you, Adam. I think what does Adam like for music? Adam likes vocal harmony. <laughs> That's my number one thing that I think Adam likes. Adam likes vocal harmony. This this is an anti-vocal harmony album. There's some there's vocal harmony on Dylan's stuff later, and some great vocal harmony on later. Yeah, Dylan you know stuff, what else? But... I don't think there's any Hammond organ. <laughs> well, that's it. Maybe throw it out the window. Oh, Maybe on track. Yeah, that's the problem. Other yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the problem. Well, yeah, but like, uh, there are many things in. I understand what you're saying, and I understand that I have a personal connection to that, and that that's fine. I don't expect you to care about it in the same way I do ever. But there are certain things, certain pieces of art that are worth taking the time to appreciate sure. in this life, even if they go a little bit against our natural inclinations. And I think this type of stuff, or at least Bob Dylan's songwriting career, is one such thing. I certainly am arguing for that. Uh, one of the things I really appreciated about the deep dive this week, because I had listened to this album many times before and very much enjoyed it many times before, it, with this song in particular, which I've also listened to independent of the album a bunch of times, it took me so damn long, like literally until this week, to realize that on this song, he rhymes the last line of the chorus with the last line of the verse that he had just said. I don't know why that never occurred to me. You know, you feel to moan, but unlike before, you discover that you just be one more person crying. So don't fear if you hear a foreign sound in your ear. It's all right, Ma. I'm only sighing. Because they're so far connected in time, and they seem so disconnected. I never caught that that's where he was rhyming that from. And I don't know why I never caught that. But I was like, oh, another level of appreciation for the song. Because I felt like I was always so annoyed in my early listening of the song that he never actually used the line, it's all right, Ma, I'm only bleeding, which is a great damn line. He just never used it in the song. I'm like, why did you write a line that great and then not actually use it in the song? And I was <laughs> like, oh, it's because he's actually, there's some uh, rhyme and or reason to why he is choosing the those end lines of the choruses. Mm. So. so I'm glad. So I'm glad you said two quick callbacks. I, it's, it is an interesting point, Tom. Two quick callbacks before we move on. One, I'm glad you mentioned Eminem because I wrote down this is a little like a rap battle. He's just he's just throwing, throwing, throwing stars. And speaking of things that Adam likes in music, chord changes. This is literally a one chord song. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't think it was possible. He did it. He but it's it. got a bit of a shuffle. I think you could argue that he temporarily hits the four chords. He does do, yeah. <laughs> Many times. I mean, well, you know, it's, it's, I, I don't, I don't want to split this hair with you, Rob. It's a <laughs> lot of yeah. E minor. That's my point. Oh, yeah. It's a heck of a lot of E minor. Oh, and also, drum, Bob Dylan sure. is a, he's a huge fan of the no bridge necessary school of songwriting, which, you know, I get how that could be rub you the wrong way also. But who needs a bridge, guys? Honestly, when the when you had that many good lines in the song, you don't really need a bridge. I I got no complaints about this song. And normally I'm the guy who bitches about how long songs are and says, "Oh, you should edit it." Well, this one, no, I dig it because it is. It feels it's got that intensity, that sort of like unrelentingness to it. That like when you're done, you're sort of like, oh, oh, which I imagine must have been how he felt when he got done take one and he's like i didn't fuck that up the entire time it actually this is a usable take well i thought this was gonna take forever to get down i will know? absolutely give you that yes 
that would I, I can't imagine the size of his uh, sheet music holder and how many pages he had going on. So yes. Tom, your point earlier about I think the, the answer mechanics. is non-existent and zero, uh, right, by the yeah. way. He's just, <laughs> no sheet music, no sheet music holder. He's just... Sorry, I meant lyrics. You don't yeah. need sheet music for this. <laughs> Let's roll it on to the last tune on our focus list and also the last tune on this record. It's called It's All Over Now, Baby Blue. leave now take what you need you think will last but whatever you wish to keep you better grab it fast he understands your orphan with his gun crying like a fire in the sun Look out, the saints are coming through And it's all over now, baby blue The highway is for gamblers, better use your sense Take what you have gathered from coincidence The empty-handed painter from your streets Is drawing crazy patterns on your sheets The sky, too, is falling under you And it's all over now, baby blue I put this one on here for two reasons. One was to highlight weird, minimal arrangement choices, which is his acoustic guitar and bass. There's bass? And I don't know if you guys happen to... <laughs> really? Mm-hmm. Yes. It sounds like electric guitar, right? It sounds like a fretted acoustic okay. bass, yeah. okay. which is a bizarre yeah. instrument yeah. Yeah. in okay. and of itself. William Lee. <laughs> William E. Lee. Spike Lee's dad. Get out! Oh wow, it is. I was uh, William E. Lee. Okay, also black. I thought like you throw in the E. Lee for anybody's last name, and I'm like, well, your family was real racist, <laughs> apparently. Like, <laughs> no, that was another reason I thought it was interesting. That Spike Lee's dad plays bass on this on this record, and he's kind of highlighted here. Hell yeah, I did not know that. Good for him. So wait, you're telling me that Spike Lee was all, was not some hard scrabble self made guy? Uh, everybody's <laughs> got an in. <laughs> No, I, you know, I think any, you, you see a lot of people, and you could even say this about Dylan himself, that people got a little annoyed with him. When he first came to New York, he was trying the Woody Guthrie approach to his own history, which is he was trying to look like a tramp who just hopped on a boxcar and showed up without a dime in his pocket. But in fact, he was from a middle class Jewish family, as I mentioned, from Minnesota. But, you know, I, I think a lot of a lot of performers like to obscure their past that way. And I, maybe Spike Lee is no exception. I don't know. He is the guy that's with Jack Nicholson at the game, by the way. Right. Yeah, totally. Wrong yeah. game. But, you know, other other team. But he um, not Spike Lee. Bob Dylan has a fascination with writing about 
vagabonds and starving artists and that sort of bohemian ideal of what does he say uh, the empty-handed painter from the street is drawing empty patterns on your shirts drawing something patterns on your sheets like it comes up so often in his songs this sort of down on his luck but artistic genius unappreciated unmoneyed artistic genius that I have to imagine that he's somewhat fantasized about that as an ideal that maybe he was trying sure. to achieve. Sure, but I also get the impression that he it really admires the songwriting tradition generally. I think that's where definitely where he feels like he came from, studying folk songs, studying the songs of Woody Guthrie, of Hank Williams, of people like that, and really just like learning american traditional music really thoroughly and then wanting to add to that so i i think it's a little bit of both things well so the other reason is we have gone out of our way to not interpret any of these tunes but and this one too dylan would never tell you what this is officially about i'm sure there are many interpretations of it but i've always read it as being about him and about his previous career as an acoustic only performer he had he himself has blue eyes i think the song is directed at him or at his fans and saying it's done leave here's a line from the song leave your stepping stones behind there's something that calls for you forget the dead you've left they will not follow you the vagabond who's rapping at your door is standing in the clothes that you once wore strike another match and go start anew it's all over now baby blue he's breaking away from you know the people that made him famous and maybe even a little rich and uh I think that's what this song is about. Just an interpretation, though. That's a good interpretation. I can see that. I, I think this song is beautiful. I really do like this song a lot. There's something about this song as well as a few songs on this record. This is, this is a bit of a non sequitur. But they are... I see the direct threads to later Dylan tunes that crush me. Such as Tangled Up in Blue um, and Simple Twist of Fate. There's something about the minimalist arrangement that he's experimenting with. There's something about the the meter and the timbre of the overall like and just the vibe of the song. It's in this it's in this very bittersweet fantasy world. And he just lives there so effortlessly, right? Like it's just that's the thing about Dylan that really just like he he exists so effortlessly in this alternate world i think Al, adam's like yeah i could tell he put no effort into it that's 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 the look on your face that i'm getting from you right now adam i don't agree yeah. with it but that's the, that's the look i'm getting from you uh, that's that that's definitely incorrect but but since you mentioned <laughs> but since you mentioned simple twist of fate phil it's interesting you mentioned that one because i had noted before i'm pretty sure that that is another example of a song that's just acoustic guitar and bass and i remember always thinking it's 10 years later in dylan's career and sort of a different phase of his career. But I always remember mm-hmm. thinking that was an interesting arrangement choice on that record. The band kind of comes in slowly, almost like the stop making sense film where, where pieces get added. But, but at that point in the record, it's just acoustic guitar and bass. And here's a little Delaware fun fact for you guys tangled up in blue or sorry, blood on the tracks that, that record mm-hmm. 10 years on from this is considered his great divorce album. The woman he was divorcing his first wife, from Wilmington, Delaware. Get out. Probably a lot of these songs are written about her. Hmm. Yeah, Jacob's mom. All right. She's still alive? I believe so, yeah. She's live in Wilmington? <laughs> I don't know. 
I mean, oh, if you have money, yeah. probably oh, not. Yeah. Right, I hit the lottery. I'm moving to Wilmington. Uh, so I feel like I went through phases with my Dylan listening where, you know, for a long time, Blood on the Tracks was my favorite Dylan album. Um, I never liked Nashville Skyline. That's the one where he's trying to do a different voice, and it just never did it for me. Um, I like some of the earlier stuff. I like. I definitely like Highway 61 Revisited, but I am in like a John Wesley Harding and Desire phase of my Dylan listening right now, and I've kind of been on that kick for a while. I really like John Wesley Harding. Came out two years after this one, and then uh, I really like Desire, which came out ten years or eleven years after this album came out, and, and they sound so different from each other. And I think they even sound different from from this album. Not to get too high on how great Bob Dylan is, but like, there's a lot in his catalog to appreciate. He's got a lot of albums, like a not like Willie Nelson style, but yeah, yeah, he's got like sixty records or something. It's, it seems like that many anyway. And he even has some late period great stuff. He put out that great record in the late '90s, "Time Out of Mind," that was that was pretty legit. But yeah, he definitely has these different phases. So I mean, I, th- I think that's one of the reasons he's considered great. Like we said, is that he's constantly moving forward. The through line is him, his voice, which I know a lot of people like to make fun of. And actually, one of the things I noticed about this track, "It's All Over Now, Baby Blue," is this is probably the easiest place, in my opinion, to make fun of Dylan's voice on this record, or at least on this focus list. Although, for the record, I don't think he reaches peak Bob Dylan SNL impression until Blonde on Blonde, two records later. But, you know, he sounds a little goofy at times. Blonde on Blonde's pretty good, but I agree that when people are making fun of Bob Dylan, they're thinking of Blonde on Blonde. Can we give me a little credit for not saying anything about his voice on this episode? I really think I took a lot of restraint, and I think I need some props for that. <laughs> did you like? Did you put like a post-it like right on the screen? I did. It's right on the screen right here. It says, don't be a dick about his voice. <laughs> no Dylan impressions. Right. And I made sure I didn't do any of those either. You know, in all in all seriousness, Adam, like obviously he makes some odd choices with the way he relaxes or lacks fails to relax his sinuses and the overtones those create, right? But like, but like he is in time, he is in tune. It's just like he wants yeah, to annoy you. I don't think he's a super right? emotive singer. I think you have to listen to what he says, not necessarily okay. how he says it, right? Like the human voice. Uh, like a like a vi- yeah, yeah, like a, a violin, great, like a note can make you cry. You add vibrato to it, the tone, the timbre. If you're just uh, getting the that's, lyrics that's, out, that's so, great concrete yeah. feedback. It's my one contribution this episode. Also, again, <laughs> bear in mind that he is, by all accounts, like chain smoking, probably unfiltered cigarettes. This he's still alive, time. by the way. Eighty years old. Has been four years. Yeah. Four years. So, you know, and yet he's twenty three. <laughs> That, all that all that put together really boggles my mind. Yeah. Yeah. How could a 23-year-old have this voice? Okay. Let's I think we've rounded out our commentary on the songs. Let's throw it around the horn. Is Bob Dylan's Bringing It All Back Home a must listen before you die? Tom, I'll throw it to you. All right. I'm just going to list off the songs on this album that I don't like. I don't particularly like Outlaw Blues. I don't like Bob Dylan's 15th Dream. End of fucking list. Listen to this album. This is a great album. Uh, this is a yes for me as well. I, I think this is the type of record that makes a professor of music's, you know, history of rock and roll list. 
Um, I think this, as well as some subsequent Dylan records over the next four or five years, maybe ten years since I love Desire so much, are just must-listens. Note to self, I am actually going to look up which other Bob Dylan records made the list because I feel like, you know, might want to, you know, rile myself up after this one. All right. So is that a, that's a yes from me. Is that a yes from you too, Phil? We got that one? We got a yes from you on there? Uh, that's, that's an affirmative. All right. So- all right. Adam, would you like your naysaying logs officially? So growing up, I think my dad had two Dylan albums. One was Freewheeling, and the other one was the, I guess it was Highway 61 or whatever. Uh, I listened to those. Uh, to my point earlier, nothing really caught me. In 1999, he came to the Bob Carpenter Center, which is the, the small-ish stadium at the University of Delaware. I went to that show. Of course. I had to go see Bob Dylan, right? It's like once-in-a-lifetime thing, so I go... I, I, it was completely unimpressive. I just didn't, I don't know if I was expecting more, but it was just what I assumed it was going to be. By the way, the Bob Carpenter Center holds 5,000 people. So you saw Dylan with 5,000, fewer than 5,000 people on the shore. I I went to that show too, by the way. And you were probably blown away. It just didn't do anything for me. So I, I think this gets down to the different strokes for different folks, right? I didn't like this week. I don't necessarily like Bob Dylan, but... You have to listen to this because you find out what you do and what you don't like. Oh, so I will not be listening to this again. Twisted turns. uh, (laughs) (laughs) And there you have it. I'll just implore you one last time to put these vegetables into your diet some somehow, some way. If you need to go through a greatest hits comp or whatever, or get one of us to make you the most palatable Bob Dylan song. What's the fun in palatable though? Find your way. Find your way to appreciating some Bob Dylan and start from there because the dude won a Nobel Prize and I think it was. Oh well my God, earned. we have to hear about that Nobel Prize every time Dylan is. <laughs> oh yeah, because that doesn't mean anything. Good point. Yeah, it means nothing. Yeah, because you're a nihilist and who cares? Such an asshole. Sorry, go on. <laughs> I was also at that show and I remember thinking, I remember thinking the band kicked and it was awesome. I think I'm thinking of the same show at the Bob. And but you you couldn't hear a GD word he was saying. His voice is so shot. I think from about <laughs> 1990 on that you could not discern one single syllable, other than the fact that I already knew the songs and I knew the lyrics, so I kind of sensed what he was saying. But you couldn't discern them on your own. But yes, of course, I think it's obvious. I'm going to say yes. I think this is a must listen. I think it's a transitional moment in not only Bob Dylan's career, but it's a transitional moment in what's happening with music. I think this is another one of those records that a lot of future tastemakers listen to. I think the Beatles absolutely, I don't think, I know the Beatles absolutely admired and loved Dylan and listened to records like this and go listen to You've Gotta Hide Your Love Away. That's that's John Lennon trying to be Bob Dylan. Stuff like that, right? Not to mention the whole songwriting tradition through the 60s from there. Guys like Jimi Hendrix covering his songs or The Grateful Dead being influenced by him or various other songwriters throughout the years. So I think this is an important and pivotal moment in an important artist's catalog. You should absolutely listen to it. If you're one of those people, if you happen to still be listening, and you're one of those people who thinks Bob Dylan's voice is the problem. <laughs> no, you're the problem. <laughs> oh, I can't give a boost yet. Sorry. <laughs> How about a boom? Okay. Bobby, you're you're on the list, buddy, for the first time out of seven. You made it past the goalie this once. We'll see if you make it 
on the next go round. You know what? Maybe with the maybe with the exception of Elvis Costello, Bob Dylan might be the person who would give the least amount of fucks about the fact that he made our list. <laughs> Very <laughs> true. Not care at all. It's true. Man didn't show up for Stockholm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, good point, Rob. Yeah. yeah, I got time for that. Yeah. Okay. Actually, I changed my boat. Fuck Bob Dylan. No. <laughs> We're having an awards ceremony, Bob. You can come by Wilmington. We'll give you a, we'll give you a plaque. All right. I believe all that remains is to pick what we're going to be listening to next week. I'll throw it over to Tom for that. Excellent. Thank you very much for sticking around with us, everyone. I hope you have enjoyed yourself as much as I have for the spirited discussion. I have the Albinator 5000 here. It is primed, prepped, ready to go. Let's spin that wheel and see what our homework assignment will be. So next week we will be listening to Drum Roll, Please. Oh, yeah. D'Angelo's Brown Sugar. The departure? Definitely. Yeah. There will be significantly less lyrics on that record. (laughs) And a bit more bass, I'm assuming. Protest song after protest song after protest song. (laughs) Buddy Woody's protesting is, why won't you make sweet enough love to me? Nice. (laughs) Okay. Well, now we have our homework. Excited about that. Excited to dive into a new record. We hope you've enjoyed this installment of 1001 Album Complaints. If we enjoy what we're doing, shoot us over an email at 1001albumcomplaints at gmail. Let us know where we're wrong, where we're right, who's wrong, who's right. Specific call-outs are most welcome, honestly, listeners. We really... By name, timestamps, all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, I have a filter on the Gmail address to make sure that we call out times when Adam is wrong, so that'll really rise to the top of our Please. list. <laughs> yes! Okay, but it's been lovely chatting with you all for 1001 Album Complaints. I've been Rob. I've been Tom. I'm Phil. And I'm Adam. Boosh. Boosh.